0: Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus.
1: Perfect. What do I do? <laughs> This morning we'll be continuing to study Ecclesiastes. We'll be reading from chapter two, uh, verses one through 11 then. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But That also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me in wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired and I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun.
0: Andrew. Well, this weekend I want to talk to you about the subject of hedonism. Hedonism. Now, it's not exactly a normal weekend church conversation. I would suspect that very few of you had a conversation about hedonism this week. It's a rather obscure word. It's rather confusing. Jenny and I, the entire time we walked through the Slanko Fair on Friday, the subject of hedonism never came up at all. And it just doesn't come up normally in life, does it? In fact, when I first mentioned the word hedonism, it can sound like I'm talking about heathenism. And heathenism is not hedonism. Heathenism is that worldview or that practice of people who refuse all religion and especially Christianity. Hedonism, however, is the belief that my happiness and pleasure is the highest good and ultimate purpose of life. My happiness and pleasure, the ultimate good, the highest purpose. The ultimate purpose of life so so bob you know i don't really care about your pleasure your happiness your good in life because here's the deal my pleasure my happiness that is the highest that is the ultimate not yours not kyle no one else here not you eric not you megan it is all about me that is the definition of hedonism. Hedonism is a natural outgrowth of humanism, which was introduced to us last week by Pastor Paul. Humanism is that worldview where you look at life and you understand that life finds its meaning wholly and completely in mankind, completely discounting that there is a God and that God has any meaning in life. Hedonism, however, takes humanism one very selfish step further by putting me and my interests at the center of life as I pursue my own pleasures and my own happiness so there are several reasons that we need to talk about hedonism this weekend and the very first is because it is the next subject that comes up in our study of ecclesiastes remember that we are studying ecclesiastes by looking at six major themes in ecclesiastes and hedonism is one of those major themes ecclesiastes was written by solomon who is the son of King David, King of Israel. And Solomon exchanged, as Pastor Paul reminded us last week, his kingly robes for the robes of a teacher or a preacher. And so as Solomon is coming to the end of his life, he's looking back over the course of his life. He's examining life. He's testing life. He's trying to find the meaning and the purpose of life so that he can instruct us where you find true satisfaction in life. Last week, we learned that that Solomon tested life by the philosophy of humanism. This week, we learned that he is testing life by the philosophy of hedonism. It's interesting, Warren Wiersbe, Bible scholar, has written that in the great laboratory of life, Solomon experimented with one thing after another as he searched for a satisfying life. So first, humanism now hedonism, and in the weeks to come, there will be a few more isms by which he is testing life. But here today, the focus is hedonism. Look again at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you, I will test you, meaning life, with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be, Oh, now, that's going to be your key word, and I'm going to have you repeat it several times. Make sure you stay awake all morning. So I proved it proved to be what? Say it one more time really loud. Meaningless. Meaningless. That's exactly right. Now listen, in his quest to find the meaning of life, Solomon decided to put himself and his interests at the center of life and to pursue his own pleasure and happiness. Look again in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. Talk about very clear, very selfish. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Say that with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Friends, that is hedonism. And Solomon embraced it with unbridled passion. Bible scholar Douglas O'Donnell writes that within the house of hedonism, there are many rooms, and Solomon tried to sleep in all of them. So this morning, I'd like to take you through Solomon's house of hedonism and introduce you to those things in which he tried to find true meaning and satisfaction in life. And so we begin with the house called laughter. Laughter. Did you ever notice that sometimes there are people in your life who hide behind laughter, fun and games to try to escape the pain of life. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever experienced that? They make everything a joke. And so rather than face the realities of life, they drown those realities in frivolity. Laughter, fun, games become their distraction to the real pain of life. Now, now hear me when I say this, laughter isn't wrong. By absolutely no means should you understand laughter to be wrong. It's actually a gift from God. And it's a wonderful expression of of joy and, and satisfaction over certain things that happen in our lives. But it was never designed by God to breathe the ultimate satisfaction of our lives. And it was never designed by God to be the means by which we hide from the pain of life. Look at what this same Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13. He says this, laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, when the laughter ends, when the laughter ends, the grief remains. And so Solomon went into the house of hedonism and the very first room he went into to try to find the meaning of life, to try to find satisfaction in life, was the house of comedy, the house or the room of laughter. And as he did that, he found that though it was a momentary, momentary distraction from pain, that ultimately it did not deliver him from the pain and the reality of life. And that is why in verse two, he writes, laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? And so the next room that he visits in the house of hedonism is the room called wine. Solomon says in verse 3 that he tried cheering himself with wine. Now, it's interesting about this language. He tried cheering himself with wine means that it failed him. He tried it, and it didn't work. And so probably when the wine was over, he didn't feel any better than he did when the wine began, and maybe he was even left with a hangover. We don't know. But the reality is, He tried to drown his sorrows in wine. He tried to escape reality with alcohol. And what he tells us is there is no ultimate satisfaction. No long term pleasure to be found in drinking yourself to quote happiness. It simply doesn't exist. And so he continued on. First, there was the room of laughter. Then there was the room of wine. And now he goes into in this house of hedonism, the room called Great Projects. Now on the screen, I want you to notice that I have two pretty significant references. And those references, First Kings chapters two through 11, Second Chronicles chapters one through nine, they are actually the record in the Old Testament of the life of Solomon. And they will record the history of Solomon from his coronation as king of Israel to his death. And I challenge you, they're almost exactly the same in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, mirror reflections of each other. I challenge you to choose one of those and actually take some time to read about the life of Solomon. Because what you read there is that one of the signature aspects of Solomon's life is that he tried to find satisfaction and meaning in life in the great projects That he undertook. For example, he bought and developed real estate. He built bigger and better houses. He had the best gardens anyone had. He was an engineer. He created three massive reservoirs that are called Solomon's Pools. And if you go to Israel today, you can still visit their location and see the indentations of them in the earth. The Word of God says he owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before him. But you know what he also found? Good was never good enough. Big was never big enough for Solomon. Every project that is listed and mentioned in verses 4 through 8 is mentioned in the plural. In other words, for Solomon, one house wasn't enough. He needed many houses. For Solomon, it wasn't enough to have one park, one reservoir, one herd, one flock. Everything had to be in the plural, bigger and better, more of everything, and then He writes this, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Everything was meaningless, even though in the pursuit of both pleasure. And happiness Solomon according to the word of God amassed silver and gold for himself and the treasures of the kings and the provinces. He had money more wealth than anyone could possibly have and by the measurements of our own culture by every rational means by which we in our culture measure life this man should have been happy. He should have been satisfied. He had silver. He had gold. Listen, in the Word of God in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says that the king of Tyre delivered boatloads, and I quote the scriptures, of gold and silver and ivory and apes and baboons to the shores of Solomon. Don't you think that's an odd combination? I kind of do. Gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. That's what I want to invest my money in too. And I really don't want them around the house unless they're trained. But anyway, gold, silver, ivory. He had it all. So much so that the word of God says that silver was like stones in Solomon's house. People walked over it. He had so much gold that the Word of God teaches and tells us this. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. That's 25 tons of gold that he personally received every year, not including the revenues that were brought in by merchants and traders. Also, all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. He had so much gold that when he built his throne, it required six steps to the seat and a footstool. And the Bible says that they built the steps and the footstool of solid 24-karat gold. He used gold for his flooring. Don't you ever complain about the price of carpet today. (laughs) He used gold for his flooring and he stepped on it. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, when I looked at my portfolio, when I weighed my gold, when I walked across my silver, when I stepped up on the 24 carat, everything was everything was meaningless. And what is so sad about Solomon's house of hedonism is that it was actually built at the expense of other people. Hedonism is selfishly unconcerned with others' well being. It is all about me and what I want. And so we see that in Solomon. The Word of God says that he bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into his household. If you read on in 1 Kings chapter 9, you find out that these slaves were forced labor that built his houses, dug his reservoirs, planted his fruit trees. He stepped on people to get to where he wanted to be in life. The Word of God also says that he acquired Men and women singers for his entertainment. The actual word that's used here is he bought them. He bought his own choir, he bought his own musicians, so that they could entertain him and make him happy. And entertain he did. In first Kings chapter four is recorded this the daily food requirements, the daily, the daily food requirements. For Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour, 300 bushels of meal, also 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry, that is, fattened geese. You men who are going to the 200 men barbecue this afternoon, Solomon, he outdid all of us. I heard this week that the Queen's garden parties in England had an attendance of 10,000. This daily food allowance was able to feed 20 to 30,000 people every day in the household of Solomon. He had it all. He had it all. And then the word of God says this. He had acquired a harem as well. In 1 Kings chapter 11, we learn that King Solomon loved many women besides his own wife. He had one wife. She was the daughter of Pharaoh. But according to the word of God, he then acquired 700 more wives. That makes 701 wives. Someone pointed out that they thought maybe it was 699 in the wife that he was married to was actually the 700th. I really don't think there's a lot of difference between 700 and (laughs) 701. And in addition to the 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. A concubine is a woman that is given to a man for one purpose, and that's sexual pleasure, no other purpose. She is to that man, not a woman, but an object of sexual desire. She is to be used by him for his pleasure without regard for her needs. Solomon tested life with hedonism. He traveled through the house of hedonism first in the room of laughter, and then in the room of wine, and then in the room of great projects, and now in the room of untrammeled sexual desire. That's how Ray Steadman described Solomon, untrammeled sexual desire. It had been years since I had read the word untrammeled. You know what it means? Untrammeled means not deprived of freedom of action or expression, not restricted or hampered, no boundaries, no rules, if it feels good. And that's how Solomon lived his life. And then he writes this. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. (laughs) And after having just studied Solomon, we can all say, boy, isn't that for sure? I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work. And this was the reward for all my labor. Leave that up there a moment. Just leave that screen up there. This was the reward for all my labor. In other words, what he's saying is I... I took advantage of every single thing and person for my own pleasure and happiness. I denied myself nothing. And for the moment my heart took delight. This was the reward for my labor. But then he writes this. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Friends, what I've just described for you is Solomon's testimony. It comes out of Ecclesiastes 2, and it's also found throughout First Kings and Second Chronicles. And we might look at that and we say, okay, that's a great history lesson. What does it have to do with us? I want to remind you today that Solomon's testimony is also holy scripture. And that because it's Holy Scripture, everything we've just read and everything we've just studied has been inspired by God. And according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16, everything we've just read, everything we've just studied has been inspired by God for the purpose of teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and instructing us in righteousness. This is the Holy Word of God. Therefore, it has lessons to teach us right here, right now, for the living of our lives today. And what are those lessons? Let me explain three of them to you. First of all, what we've just studied, friends, this is our culture. This is our culture. The American culture in which we live, of which we are a part, is an increasingly hedonistic culture. And we have to admit that. Our culture has an untrammeled appetite For money, sex, and power. There are no boundaries. There are no longer any rules. There are no longer any parameters by which we exercise our interest or desire in any of these things in the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a culture that subscribes itself to the philosophy that if it feels good, and so we see that happening. Across our culture today. And I think what is important for us to realize, something that I read earlier this week, is that if you live for pleasure alone, enjoyment decreases unless the intensity of the pleasure increases. And so after a while, people get kind of tired of the same old sin, and we invent new ways to sin, new ways to find pleasure, new ways to find happiness. And as a result, we become even more corrupt and wicked than we were before. And what is so very sad about this is that we live in a culture that though it has so many good things about it, so many very positive aspects to it, is increasingly becoming individualistic to the point where it is unconcerned for the well-being of others. This is where American individualism has taken a left-hand turn and has left us sorely wanting. Life is not all about Mike Sigmund. Life is not all about Bob Blackwell. Life is not all about Will Martin. Life is not all about Tim and Jane Fry and their family. We live in a community in which life is about all of us. And so we need to reject the hedonism of our culture and embrace a way of living that does not discount others, but takes into account the needs of others and then expresses genuine compassion and concern for one another. Unfortunately, the culture in which we live is a culture in which if I am disagreed with very strongly by a certain segment of the culture that segment of the culture will cancel me and therefore i no longer exist because i do not align myself with their particular philosophy or way of thinking whatever happened to civility in the culture in which we could have actually conversation about differences of opinion and be able to come to a place where at least Though we may disagree, we did not and were not mean and angry toward one another. Now, what's the answer to that? Well, you know the answer, don't you? His name is? And Jesus alone. There is no other organization in our culture that is going to transform our culture than the one living organization called the Church of Jesus Christ. We are in this culture today to lift up the light of Jesus Christ so that the culture is transformed by the only one hope the culture has, and his name is Jesus Christ. The very first truth that we learn from the testimony of Solomon and the Holy Scripture is that this is our culture Now the second truth is a bit pointed, and it's a question, and it's simply this. Is this you? Is this you? Remember what Douglas O'Donnell observed within the House of Hedonism? There are many rooms, and Solomon tried to sleep in all of them. Have you been sleeping in any of the rooms in the House of Hedonism? Have you tried to hide from the pain of life through laughter, fun, and games? Have you tried to cheer yourself with wine, only finding that drowning yourself in alcohol leads to no good and not good? Have you undertaken great projects? Have you poured your time and effort into bigger and better? Have you been caught up in untrammeled sexual desire and temptation? at the expense of others, and all for yourself? God teaches us that such choices in life are a chasing after the wind. Nothing will be gained and much will be lost. As I was reading about Solomon this week, I had forgotten this truth, and that is that Solomon was told by God that he was to be the husband of but one wife. He was to be faithful to her. Man, did he take a left-hand turn. He acquired 700 wives, 300 concubines. He lived completely outside the parameters and the boundaries that God had established for him. The result of that was that those wives who were foreign-born and worshipped gods like Baal tempted him to the point where he gave up his worship of the one true and living God and turned his attention to worship the gods that his wives worshipped. God challenged him. God called him to account. God called him to confession and to repentance. And God said, because of your sin, I will judge you. And the result will be that this kingdom you treasure will be literally ripped away from the hands of of your son and your legacy. See, here's something that we don't like to face in life, and that is that there are consequences to our sin, are there not? And that there is a judgment that comes for the sin that we commit in our lives. Is this you? Have you gotten caught in the tongues and the hands and the grip of hedonism? Because if it is, here's the third truth, and it is good news. God has a different plan for us. He has a different plan for us. I want to say something to you today about God, and I want you to remember this because it's very important. You know what? God is not a spoil sport. You know, a lot of people think he is. A lot of people, and they, they'll never mention this in play company. They think God is—they think that God is out to ruin all their pleasures, and that all God wants to do is lock you in a room so that you can be like a monk or a nun. Now we're not Catholic, but you know—you know you don't want you get the idea here, and that all you do is just worship all the time, you can never enjoy life. God is not a spoil sport. What is a spoil sport? Here's a spoil sport. A spoil sport is a person who behaves in a way that spoils other people's pleasures. That is not who God is. God never was that. God is not that. Let me tell you who God is. God is the satisfier of our souls. That's who he is. Listen to what the word of God says in Psalm 145, verse 16. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. I want you this morning, if you're living, just raise your hand right now. If you're alive, just raise your hand. Look at that. Look at that. Two-thirds of you. About three-quarters of you. Oh, my word, you're doing better. Two-thirds of the 8 o'clock service was alive. Two-thirds of them. The other third, man, they carried him out. But anyway, (laughs) look at that. The Word of God says, you open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. This is our God. He is not a spoil sport who sits in heaven on the throne with a divine hammer ready to lower it on us and ruin all of our fun. Our God is a God who is a loving heavenly father who sits on his throne in heaven and he actually is looking down upon his creation. He's looking at us and he's opening his hands up and he's just pouring blessing upon blessing upon blessing to satisfy the desires of every living thing. You don't get everything you want. You get everything you need and everything he wants you to have. He is a kind and gracious. He is a good and a good father. Listen to what the Word of God says in Psalm 103, verse 5. The Lord satisfies with de- my desires with good things. Look at what Psalm 16, verse 11 says. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God has a plan for us. And it's a plan to bless us. Solomon discovered this. For, and He came back to us and he gave us a report. And it's called Ecclesiastes. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. And here is the conclusion of the matter. Read this with me. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You're in the house of hedonism. You tried all those rooms. You found that life is absolutely meaningless. If you try to test it by hedonism, if you try to test it by humanism. But let me tell you, Solomon said, after I traveled through life, after I tested with every ism known to mankind, this is what I have found. If you want a satisfying life, if you want to find meaning, if you want to find purpose in life, then I want you to fear God and keep his commandments. Fear him doesn't mean live in dread of who God is, doesn't mean being anxious and worried that he might lower that divine hammer on you. No, to fear God means to have reverent love for the one true and living Savior. I love this definition from Daniel Aiken, to fear God means to put God in his proper place, us in our proper place, and all fears, hopes, dreams, and agendas in their proper place. Let me tell you, if I fear God, it means that I put Mike Sigmund in his proper place, and that means that I'm a sinner. I recognize them as sinner. I recognize that there is no good thing within me apart from God. And recognizing who I am as a sinner, I recognize who he is as the one and only savior of the world. He is our savior through his son, Jesus Christ. And I recognize that I have absolutely no hope in life apart from one who will die in my place, pay for my sins, rise again on the third day the victor over sin and death and evil and offer to me the gift of salvation the forgiveness of my sin and a new and eternal life when i fear god i recognize that i am a sinner and jesus is my savior And then I surrender to him all fears, hopes, dreams, and agendas. I put them in their proper place. I say, Jesus, I say, Jesus, I'm done trying to control my life. I'm done trying to to dictate how I live, how my wife lives, how my children live. I surrender it all to you. I'm done trying to dictate how to pastor Grace Community Church. I surrender it all to you, I give you my hopes, I give you my dreams, I give you my agendas, I give you everything in my life because you are the one true and living Lord and Savior. And then I pledge to keep your commands, to obey your word, to align my life with the standards and the truth of the Bible. I accept Jesus and I obey him because I know that my obedience to him will keep me out of the house of hedonism and in the very pleasure of my God. I want to ask you a question today. And it's a sincere question. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? I know you're in church, I understand that. But surrendering our life to Jesus Christ doesn't mean going to church. Surrendering your life to Jesus Christ means that you understand that you are a sinner in desperate and absolute need of a Savior that there is not a thing you can do about your sin. And frankly, you're tired of living with it. You wanna be freed from it. You'd like it to be washed away and it's power broken. And you recognize that there is only one who can do that for you. His name is Jesus. There is no other savior There is no other way of salvation than Jesus Christ. And so you intentionally, deliberately, having engaged your mind and your heart, surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, asking him to take away your sin and to give you a new and eternal life such that As you sit here today, you sit here and you are able to say, I know that I know that I know that my sins are forgiven and I have a new and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? And if you have not, Are you ready and willing today to take that next step in your search for the meaning of life and surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord? Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask you that question. If you're online with us, I ask you that question wherever you may be worshiping with us. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? And are you ready, if you have not, are you ready today to make that decision of surrender? With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you are ready to make that decision of surrender, I would invite you right now just to raise your hand and in doing so you're saying, Pastor Mike, I'm ready today to surrender my life to Christ. I confess I've been living the way I want to. I've been living my life according to my own terms, but I'm ready to surrender to Jesus that he would be Savior and Lord of my life. Would you just raise your hand? Are there any in this service who would make that decision today and pray to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life? I invite you to pray this prayer. Jesus, I confess to you today that I am a sinner in need of salvation. I've tested and tried many different things in life and none of them have satisfied me. But I have come to believe that you are the one who will satisfy me. Please forgive me of my sin. I turn from it today. I believe and confess you, Jesus, as Lord And I believe that God raised you from the dead. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give you every part of every part of me. And I thank you for the gift of salvation that you are now giving me. Thank you that you've forgiven my sin. Thank you that you've given me a new life. Thank you that you've given me an eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Lord, I thank you for those who have prayed that prayer this weekend. Those who have surrendered their lives to you, Jesus. Who've laid down their attempts to find meaning and satisfaction in all other places. To find pleasure and happiness in all other things. And to come to you, the satisfier of their souls, the savior, and to find in you the one true and living satisfaction, that of salvation. Lord, I also thank you that for those of us who've known you as Savior and Lord, that you've reminded us again that apart from you, there is no true pleasure, happiness, or satisfaction in life. It flows out of our relationship with you. Help every one of us here to continue to develop and nurture a strong, loving, and living relationship with you, Jesus, every day. And I pray this blessing for my church family in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Well, thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times and location, check out our website at gccws.net.